Well, would you open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning? Nehemiah chapter 6. And as you heard read, uh, this is a little bit of a longer chapter. Uh, I had him read the whole chapter because I think it's important for us to see the flow of the story. But I do invite you to open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible handy, it's going to be on page 401 in one of the pew Bibles, which will be under a chair in front of you. And that will help you follow along. Yesterday, we went apple picking at Mad Tom Orchard, and it was fun. I had never been there before. It was a, it's a beautiful location if you've never been, and if you, even if you don't like apples, I'm going to give you a motivation to go for another type of apple. I found out when we arrived there that there is a wooden apple hidden in one of those trees, and if you find that wooden apple, you win an iPad. So it's pretty, pretty incredible motivation to go apple picking. And so I'm, I'm out there apple picking uh, with the kids and Melanie. And all of a sudden, I saw this wood-looking apple. So I went to grab it, and it was just an apple. <laughs> so it's still there. Gives you a chance. I think they're open another week or so. If you didn't know that, um, have fun. And the apples are really good. Well, my whole point in sharing that is because when you go to pick apples, what I discovered yesterday is in a, a gorgeous orchard like that, the apple trees this year are just loaded with these juicy looking apples. You are going to find a good apple, but to get to it, you're probably going to pass a bunch of other apples along the way and, and certainly uh, even along the same branch. You just can't get all the juicy apples. And that's how I felt this morning, uh, or this week, as I studied Nehemiah chapter 6 for this morning, there's actually so much in this chapter. I encourage you to read it and to study it on your own. And I had to leave some of the gold nuggets along the way. I had to leave some of those juicy morsels along the way. And we're going to hit some of the main points that I think God would have for us and be content with that. So two Sundays ago, we saw how God's work is happening, and we saw how opposition will come from the outside when that is happening. And then last Sunday, we saw how when God's work is happening, threats to unity and continued service together will come from the inside. We saw that in Nehemiah chapter 5, and we saw how Nehemiah worked to handle conflict within the, the body, within God's people, to handle that biblically. And that sermon, if you we're unable to be here last Sunday. Well, then today, before we get to chapter eight and we see this revival that has happened among God's people, we see how it wasn't just the, the physical walls, but spiritually the people were being rebuilt. Chapter eight's an incredible chapter. But before we get to that, we see that the attacks from the outside continue just because they've been persistent, just because they have followed God all along the way, just because they have dealt with conflict biblically within the body doesn't mean that the attacks stop from the outside. And so I want us to see three keys to perseverance in God's work for the glory of God. Three keys to perseverance. How will you continue on in what God has called you to when those attacks come, whether it's from the outside or you could say from the inside, from other believers or within your own family? Well, today, like I said, we're especially looking at spiritual attacks, attacks from the outside. First, what I want you to see is that we must have a laser focus on what God has called us to do. Let's go to that first slide. Number one, we must have a laser focus 
on what God has called us to do. Will you read these three verses with me again? Take a look in your Bibles. This is page 401, if you have a pew Bible. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. So notice the wall is almost done at this point. Although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. That's important because the point was to protect them. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now, I want you to understand if Nehemiah had left the work to go have this meeting with these clowns, I don't, I don't struggle with calling them clowns because that's what they are. They're just trying to distract from God's work and what's happening here, he would have lost three days of work on the walls. Not only would he have lost three days of work, but maybe the people would have been discouraged during that time. There, was, there were uh, things happening. Maybe they would have been attacked during that time. But what we do know is that Nehemiah was not going to take a day traveling there, a day there to meet with them, and then a day traveling back to meet with them. Not only that, but they were not trusted men. Remember what they had done to him before this. Uh, you could take a look in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 4, just to remind yourself, if you want to take a quick look there, you'll see at the very beginning of chapter 4 that they were so angry with him, uh, not that long before uh, chapter 6, that they had brought an army against him. So it doesn't make any sense for him to go down and leave the work that God has called him to. He's laser focused on what God has called him to do for God's glory doesn't make any sense to leave that and go meet with these guys, even though they now have the appearance of trying to work together. Now, one of the things I want you to notice, and you'll see this at the end of uh, chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, which we'll take a quick look at next week before, as we move into his background into chapter 8. What you'll notice there is you see another example yet again of how when Nehemiah was faced with a problem, what would he do? He would pray. We've seen that over and over, and then he would act. He would pray, and he would act. He would pray, and he would act. And, and we see an example of that right here in chapter 6. He prays when this problem comes upon him. We'll see his prayer in just a moment. But also at the beginning of chapter 7, you see that through that ongoing dialogue that he had with God, those lines of communication were open. He was led by the Lord through these challenges. At the beginning of chapter 7, you see that what do I do next now that these walls are built? What do I do with the people next? And you see that he says that God led him to do that. And what I want to just pause and think about for a moment is as you leave those lines of communication open with God, as you read his word, as you hear from him in his word, as you pray to him, he will direct you as you go throughout your day. Nehemiah didn't know what was going to come at him from any moment. In fact, it was nonstop coming at him from every direction. And yet he was laser focused on what God had him to do. And God even used ordinary means to lead him. I think one of the things that he saw here is these guys were not trustworthy. And there was no reason to think that anything had changed. And so he was going to stay focused on what God called him to do as he prayed and as he sought God and led the people. Well, notice in verse 3, 
Notice how he handles it. Nehemiah doesn't know their motives, although he can guess them. So notice what he says. Rather than say, I know you're simply trying to harm me or stop me, he focuses on the great work that God has called him to do. So right now, before we go any further in this chapter, I want you to ask yourself, what is the great work that God has called me to do? Because we can study a book like this and the temptation for us can be to say, well, I'm not in some sort of great project for God's glory, and so these things don't apply to me. But what I want you to think about is that if you are in Jesus, he has a great work for you. It may not look great from the outside. It may not draw the kind of attention that this wall project drew. But first, think about this. He has called us to a great collective work as the people of God. We should learn from Nehemiah. And one of the things that we should learn that we've seen over and over as we've gone through Nehemiah, and we'll continue to see this, is that we can't act like islands as God's people. We have to be able to work together as God's people to be able to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. There are things that God is calling our church to do to reach our community, whether it's through our regular worship services and our regular ministries on Sunday morning and even, even Wednesday, like, like this Wednesday's potluck prayer praise, or whether it's through a special outreach. But if we don't work together as God's people using our gifts, then we won't be able to do the great work he's called us to as God's people. And also, I want you to think about this. Part of the work that God has called you to as an individual is to glorify God where he has put you. Think about what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, what were you when you were called? He's talking about being saved there. He says, what were you doing? What was your job? What was your role in life when you were called? And one of the things that he counsels them to do there is he says, keep doing it. But now do it for God's glory. Now do it as a witness for God. So there's, in one sense, we're called to work together as God's people. In another sense, when we go out during the week and we do whatever God has called us to, whether it's at work or in the home or wherever he has us, we're called to live for his glory and to be laser focused on what he has called us to do for him. Let's take a look at verse four. We learn more about this kind of focus in verse four. It says, they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. Notice verse 5. In the same way, Sambalot, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of the reports. So come now and let us take counsel together. Do you see that? Do you notice what it said in verse 5? Five times they came at him. Five times. They are relentless. It's like that drippy faucet that you don't know how to repair or you don't want to repair it but you have to repair it because it's driving you crazy it just keeps dripping that's what you see here the the thing that i love about nehemiah though is that he's so laser focused on what god has called him to do for god's glory 
that he will not be sidetracked just as they are relentless. He is even more relentless. Do you see that? He just ignores them. And when he does respond to them, he tells them the same thing. This is the work God has called me to do. You're not going to distract me from this. That's how he perseveres. He knows what God has called him to do, and he does it. He focuses on it. I want you to notice, though, it, it, it just got worse. I don't know if you saw that in verse 6 and 7 in particular. Sambalat now sends out this open letter. That means that it's similar to what an open letter would be like today, that this is meant for everyone to read it. It's kind of like publishing a, a blog post or a newspaper report. And he has these horrible accusations against Nehemiah that are not true. Nehemiah says clearly here that they're not true. And one of the problems is that this is a lot more serious than we think it is when we first read it, because it's very clear that to commit treason against the king of Persia, who, remember, trusted Nehemiah, he was his, Nehemiah was his cupbearer before he sent him to do this project. If this word got back to the king and the king thought that this was actually the reason that Nehemiah went, he would, st he would be rebelling against the king because Jerusalem was still under Persian rule and he would have been beheaded. So what we see here is these guys are not just attacking him, they are putting his life in danger. And his response, I love it, in verse 8, he says, then I sent to him, saying, notice this laser focus, I'm not going to come down and meet with you about this. No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. I want you to see there's, there's a clear time to defend yourself, to set the truth straight, be forthright and clear. But also Nehemiah doesn't dwell on that. He just throws it out there and then he continues doing his work. Think about what Jesus warned us about. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as what? As sheep among wolves. But then he says, be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves in the world. The first key to perseverance in God's work for the glory of God is we must have a laser focus on what he has called us to do. And that starts with, again, as a church. Our focus, we'll talk about this again at our annual meeting in just two Sundays. Our focus is to know Christ and to make him known. So in one sense, everything that we do corporately, that we do together as a church, has to be focused on, are we knowing our Savior deeper? And are we making him known to people who don't know him? That's what we're called to do. It's a simple as that. And then as again, as an individual, what has God called me to do with God's people? And what has he called me to do in my work? Those are questions I want you asking this morning. Ask yourself, pray about it, think about it. What has God called me to do with God's people here at Northshire Baptist? And then what has he called me to do in my work? Maybe it is what you would call work in your normal job. Maybe it is taking care of your kids at home, parenting. Maybe it's being a student. Maybe it's praying for and serving as you are able as a retired person. But ask yourself, what am I doing now? And am I laser focused on that for God's glory? It's one of the ways we'll persevere. Number two, I love this, this prayer in verse nine. I want you to see number two. Sometimes, go ahead and go to number two, please. Sometimes we need to pray less, not pray less, keep listening, 
Pray less that God would change our situation. Sometimes what we need to pray less is that God would change our situation, which is usually what we focus on, and pray more that God would change us in the situation. Take a look at how Nehemiah prays. Verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. What does he pray? So God take them away. He already put them in God's hand before. So I'm not saying we can't ever pray that the situation would change. But I love what he does here. He doesn't keep praying that. He says, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. His request for God to strengthen his hands is acknowledging, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't continue to persevere on my own. I need you. I need your power to be able to do this, God. Would you help me? It's not change this, but it's change me. I love that. I'm going to share with you uh, something I heard from the 2014 Gospel Coalition Women's Conference, which Melanie attended. Uh, maybe when I'm done preaching through Nehemiah, I'll send you a link uh, to those messages. They're excellent. And they give an overview of Nehemiah. Some of those illustrations, some of those ideas have been really helpful to me as I've uh, gone through Nehemiah and seen the big picture. And if you listen to those, you'll recognize a couple of things, especially from today's chapter and chapter 6. But here's one thing I heard that really stuck with me. Sometimes we read the Bible and we just assume that the person given the assignment enjoyed the assignment they were given by God. But did Noah like animals? Did Moses like camping? We don't know. Did Ruth like gleaning? I doubt that. Did John the Baptist like confrontation? Did Paul the Apostle like prison? Did Nehemiah even like construction? Think about where Nehemiah was before he was in this palace. He had a cushy job. We have found out already from a few chapters ago he was stinking rich. And yet he left all of that to follow God's call for God's glory. And the way that he was able to persevere in that is one of the things that we see here is he wasn't praying always, God, change this situation, but God, change me. So often we automatically think, and I fall into this too, what do I enjoy doing? And that's a great question. I will tell people that all the time. If you're trying to figure out how does God want you to serve him, I think a good starting point is what do I enjoy doing? What are the gifts that God has given me? But sometimes we need to take it a step further and we need to say, what is it that God has called me to? It might even be beyond what I enjoy doing. He might want to use the gifts and the abilities and the circumstances that he has me in, in a way that I don't enjoy. But you know what? He can change me through that. He can use me through that. This is why I want you to understand this, especially as we have our annual meeting coming up. This is why when sometimes people come to me with ideas uh, for ministries or changes we could do in our church, one of the things that I will usually say back to them is, how do you see yourself being a part of that? And everyone always kind of, kind of laughs when a pastor says that. But what I want to make sure you understand is that it's not a punishment for having ideas, 
what, what it is, is it's a serious question. If you want to see change, are you willing to commit your time? Are you willing to commit yourself, your abilities, your money, your Sunday morning commitments to serve God here and be a part of the change that he might be calling us to? So it's a question we have to ask. The same applies to marriage counseling. The same idea that we see in Nehemiah 6.9. If a husband or a wife comes to me and tells me that they're having marriage problems, but their spouse is not willing to work on it, then what I will tell them is, well, if you see this problem, but your spouse isn't willing to work on it, or at least not willing to meet with me to work on it, what I can do is I can help you, I can pray with you and show you how does God want me to be God's kind of man? How does God want me to be God's kind of woman in this situation? The, the focus now becomes less, Lord, change the situation, and Lord, change me. And often that's what he will use to change the situation. So I want to ask you, what do you find yourself in today that you're struggling with? It could be a number of things. I've just shared two examples. But between you and God, are you willing to pray this prayer that we see Nehemiah praying in verse 9? Lord, change me. Strengthen my hands. And then lastly, I want you to see, number three, our motivation for perseverance must be the fear of the Lord for the glory of God. And we see this in verses 10 to 16. So first we're going to see this story about this, uh, this crazy call to go into this temple in verses 10 to 16. And Dan already read it, so I'm not going to read that whole story right there. But what we have going on is there's this prophet named Shemaiah, and this prophet of all people calls Nehemiah into his home. He seemed to have some sort of sickness or some sort of disability where he wasn't able to leave his home. And the prophet tells Nehemiah to go into the temple with him. But Nehemiah knows this is just another plot to distract him or to even stop him from finishing the work that God has called them to. And how does he know this? Well, it's because what the prophet of the Lord says goes against the word of the Lord. And the word is clear that when a prophet goes against the word of the Lord, that person might be a prophet, but they are a false prophet. Scripture is so clear on that. And then Nehemiah finds out after the fact, do you notice this? Uh, when the scripture was read, I think it was in verse 15, around there. Here it is, verse 12 he had actually been hired. So he's doing this because of money. It, this wasn't a prophecy because it goes against God's will. This is a ploy to just make money off of the situation. Nehemiah knew that if he went into the temple, he was not a priest. He was not authorized to go into the temple, even if he thought his life was in danger. You might be thinking of, well, what about those Old Testament passages? And I can give you some of those passages later if you want to look them up for yourself, where the person would grab the horns of the altar. Well, that's a completely different situation. For one thing, the altar is outside of the temple. It's outside of the holy place. And that's when you've killed somebody on accident, for example, and the, somebody is trying to do vigilante justice and chase you down. And so you're basically calling for a pardon. You're calling for justice to be done before that person can kill you because the idea is they won't kill you in the temple. This is a different situation. This is somebody just trying to get Nehemiah to go against God's law 
to draw him away from the work and possibly to kill him, maybe even in the temple. I mean, these guys will stop at nothing. Wait until you see what happens at the end of the book. It's just nonstop with these clowns, like I said. But Nehemiah says, notice what Nehemiah says. He basically says, I'm not afraid of you. I know who to fear. Do you remember what happened to Uzziah? He was the king. He went into the temple to burn incense, but the king was not allowed to burn incense. That was only for the priest. God is a holy God. He had said who could go into his presence and how. And 80 priests, and I love this passage, it says these 80 bold priests, it says for the Lord, stood against him. And right as he went to light that incense, leprosy broke out on his face. And he had to leave the temple. And Nehemiah says, what kind of man do you think I am? Either I'll have leprosy break out against me or God will strike me dead because he has told me I am not to go into the temple because I'm not a priest or I will be discredited in the people's sight. And so he just calls him out from God's word. I'm not afraid of you. I know who to fear. And what I love about this is Nehemiah fears sinning more than he fears death. He might be killed. He's been by these enemies. He's been threatened many times, but he fears sinning. He fears offending God more than he fears death. Notice in verse 14. Take a look at verse 14 again. The prophets, the false prophets, you could say, did these things to make him afraid. And we saw this in chapter 5 last week that Nehemiah feared God. He, he had a greater appropriate fear, which was the fear of God, and that drove away these lesser fears that he had. The command, do not fear, in the scripture over 300 times is always following or is followed by the ultimate reason we're not to fear. So you see a command, do not fear. Why are we not to fear? And we're talking about people. We're talking about things that happen to us. Why are we not to fear those things? You, if you look for it, you'll see commands like, because I'm the Lord because I will fight for you, because I am with you, because I have promised you, because I will hold you. In other words, do not fear what happens in life, God is saying, because of me. Not because of you, but because of me, God is saying. We're never told to not be afraid because we are so great, but we're told to not be afraid because God is so great. He is the one that we fear. And if it helps you any, last week we took a look at, at these two different types of fear that we see in the Bible. In one sense, there's a, a terror, you could say, uh, a, a, an appropriate fear of God that, that um, knows that he is a holy God and that we're not allowed into his presence unless we have Jesus on this side of the cross. That's an appropriate fear. It's what drives us to know the Lord in the first place. We'll talk about that at the end. But then in another sense, there's a family type of fear that causes us to not want to offend our Heavenly Father because we love Him and we know that He's God and we want to live for Him. And so the fear of God, this healthy fear, overcomes our sinful fear of people. John Chrysostom, uh, love him, he was a, a pastor uh, from uh, the 300s, late 300s, A.D. And the Bishop of Constantinople in about 400 A.D. 
uh, I'm sorry, John Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople about 400 AD, and he was threatened by the emperor at the time that he would be sent into exile unless he changed his message. So just imagine we have situations like this happening in the world even today. A, a government comes in, they say, you have to preach this message or else. And so what does he say back in terms of whether or not he's going to preach the word, preach the gospel? Chrysostom replied to the emperor, you cannot banish me for this world is my father's house. Emperor, then I will take away all your treasure. Chrysostom, you cannot for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. The emperor comes back. Then I will drive you away from every person in the world and you will have no one left. Chrysostom, no, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. Emperor, then I will kill you. Chrysostom, you cannot. Can you imagine looking at him and saying that? When he could kill you. But he says, you cannot. My life is hidden with Christ in God. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to harm me. The fear of God overcomes our fear of people. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing here. He fears God more than he fears these threats. So look at what happened because of that. Verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 50 two days. We'll have a celebration later. Later, Nehemiah, they're marching around the walls and having a celebration, but for now, he just says, the wall is finished. And notice, it was in less than two months. And so what happened? Verse 16, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. This date that he gives us in verse 15 is less than 10 months from the time that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king and heard of the situation of the walls of Jerusalem while he was in that citadel of Susa until the wall was finished. So basically what we have here is in 10 months all of this has happened. Four months of praying, three months of planning and preparation, and less than two months of building and the wall is finished. And so because of this, the people are afraid. The enemies are afraid. Notice that in verse 16. It's because of the relational fear of God that Nehemiah and God's people have for God that now the nations have this inappropriate, well, it's appropriate, but, but they, they needed to have a right relationship with God. They have this terror fear of God because they see what God can do and they know that they're not on his side. That's what I mean by inappropriate because today Jesus tells us, come on, believe in me, get on my side, I'll save you, I'll be your savior, I'll forgive you. Think about another time this happened with a wall. There was another time that God's enemies were fearful of God because of a wall. It was Jericho, right? But that time, it was because the wall fell down. This time, it's because the wall of God's city, Jerusalem, goes back up. And so sometimes, even God will use people. Then, with Jericho, it was this amazing miracle. Sometimes God will use what seems to be normal means with people building the wall to still amaze people and to give them the fear 
of God. Think about the term, uh, the songs, uh, sorry, the lyrics in the song, Amazing Grace. We're going to sing that in just a moment here. Think about this. You know, you might be confused about these two types of fear. We looked at this last week. We looked at it a little bit today. But think about it. Amazing Grace says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Do you see that? It's a fear of God, what you could call at first a terror of him, realizing that he is a holy God, which means he is a holy judge, that then shows us his grace, and then our fears are relieved. The ironic thing here is when Nehemiah's fears are relieved by God, it's because of his greater fear of God. But the fears of the nations are raised because all they can do is be held captive to their fears because they don't know God. Maybe this will help you understand this a little better. This is an actual radio transcript between a U.S. Navy vessel and Canadian authorities. This is off the coast of Newfoundland in 1995. Americans, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. Demand that you move your course 15 degrees to the north, or countermeasures will be taken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. It's your call. <laughs> Think about it this morning. Maybe what you need to do is you need to reorient your life to God. He might be calling out to you this morning, and he might be saying, look, I'm giving you another opportunity. Do you fear me more than your fears? Do you fear me? Have you reoriented yourself to me? Have you responded to God? Has this greater fear motivated your life? So you first have to fear God in the sense that you're afraid of him. That's what's happening in verse 16. But then remember, they see God's power, but they don't know God's grace. Are we going to sing amazing fear in just a moment? No, it's amazing grace because it's when we realize the grace of God after the fear of God captivates us and we realize that we don't deserve his grace, but he pours it out on us. That's when our fears are relieved. So this morning, if you're having a hard time reorienting your life to God, let this be a reminder to you. That's the way that you'll persevere in his work. But if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then I beg you this morning, realize, have this fear of God that says, I can't approach this God. But there is one who has always approached him, his son, and he now stands in God's presence. That's how much we can approach God because of Jesus if we're trusting in him. Trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you that this grace relieves our fears. 
This morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us a healthy, appropriate, biblical fear of God. That we would realize that you, God, are holy. You are separate. You are not Santa Claus. You, you don't exist uh, for us, but we exist for you. Give us that perspective, Lord, that would be in line with your word. But also help us to realize that you are not just holy and separate. You are good. You are saving God. You are gracious and merciful. And that because of Jesus, we have all the grace that we need. We praise you for this grace. Help us to fear you more than we fear people. Help us to persevere in your work and what you have called us to do for your glory, Lord, as a church and also as individuals. Help us to do both. We need your grace, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.